0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in East Asia. I'm your host, Ricarda, and I'm here today to talk to Kathleen Baldanza about her new book, Ming China and Vietnam, Negotiating Borders in Early Modern Asia, published by Cambridge University Press in 2016. In this book, Baldanza explores the complex diplomatic exchanges between China and Vietnam from the 13th to the 17th century. Drawing on vast material of both Chinese and Vietnamese primary sources, Baldanza challenges the conventional narratives that focus on Chinese aggression and Vietnamese resistance, instead highlighting Vietnam's use of East Asian classical culture as an ideological threat to China. As such, Sino-Viet relations, read through the seven interrelated biographies covered here, should be understood as a process of negotiation and compromise. And now, please enjoy the podcast. Welcome to the show, Kate. Thanks for having me. Now, before we... Uh, start talking about your book, would you please introduce yourself to our listeners?
1: Sure. Um, I'm an assistant professor at Penn State University, uh, assistant professor of history and Asian studies. Perfect. Thank you. Um, And please tell us also how you came to
0: write this fascinating book about Ming China and Vietnam.
1: Well, the origin of of the book lies in my dissertation project, um, but it's not at all what I set out to write to begin with. Initially, I planned to write about perceptions of Vietnam in late imperial Chinese fiction. But as I was starting this project in graduate school, I found that I couldn't find basic information that I needed about the historical background of what was happening in Vietnam, especially in the 16th century during the Mao dynasty, and about um, Chinese and Vietnamese relations. So I ended up scrapping my initial research questions about uh, late imperial fiction and instead asking some very basic and unsophisticated questions like what is happening in Vietnam, who's in charge, how are um, Chinese and Vietnamese states communicating to one another what are the goals of sino Viet relations, um, and basically just what's happening. And that turned into the basis of my dissertation. As I turned a dissertation into a book, it changed a lot again, partly because in order to stay interested in a project that I'd been working on so long, I needed to, to make some changes to make it more interesting for myself. So I expanded the scope of the project quite a bit. By including a chapter on the Yuan dynasty, um, and also extending to 1597 to um, a very important embassy um, to the court from Vietnam to the court of the Wanli Emperor, where a very well-known Vietnamese scholar um, engaged in. Brushed out conversations with his Korean counterparts um, and had some memorable encounters in the court of the Wanli Emperor. Uh, The other change I made from dissertation to book was to drop a straight chronological narrative and instead adopt the perspectives of various historical actors so in some ways the book is structured like um, linked biographies of of various border crossers using their own written records uh, as a lens to understand the time period
0: and this is really what uh brings this uh book uh alive to to its readers and i've really um enjoyed reading it so um we'll start right up. I mean, the book is divided into three parts and we'll kind of go chapter by chapter. Um, but before we do that, in your introduction, you start out with a fascinating anecdote set in the early 19th century about how Vietnam came to be called Yunnan instead of uh, the traditionally recognized Annan. Could you tell our listeners why this incidence is significant
1: for setting the stage for what it is well, that to, you're doing in this book? Well, to very briefly please? recap what happened. Uh, when a, a new dynasty was established by um, the Vietnamese Emperor Zha Long in 1802, he wrote to uh, the Qing court in China and said, I have this new state. I'd like to call it Nam Viet or Nan Yue. And that uh, initiated an exchange of letters between the two courts uh, negotiating about the name and arguing about it. And the reason it was controversial in China is that the name... Um, Nan Yue or Nan Viet, of course, was an ancient kingdom that encompassed uh, what is today both Chinese and Vietnamese territory. So it was a completely unacceptable name um, in the eyes of the Qing. What they came up with was to invert the two um, syllables and make it instead Yuenan or Vietnam. um, And that's the origin of that name. The reason I find this incident interesting, I... I, um, was thinking about it in terms of Benedict Anderson's um, famous book, Imagine Communities, where he writes very briefly about this incident. And I revere um, Imagine Communities and the work that Benedict Anderson did, and I don't at all mean to dispute his main arguments, but he gives this example of this naming of Vietnam as a case where um, a sort of (sighs) – hateful Chinese monarch imposes a, a terrible name on a country and just over time it becomes, through selective forgetfulness, it becomes accepted as a national name when it was actually a hated imposition. And, um, you know, it's not really his fault because he was just using this as a brief example, but I think it's emblematic of the sort of mistaken or unnuanced ways that people have often written about vietnamese history or chinese and vietnamese relations because if we drill down into the actual story it's a case of negotiation uh, where both sides are really engaged in conversation and um, um, pushing for their um, view of history and their understanding of, of culture and coming up with a compromise so it's quite different from the way it was presented in imagined communities and it's a good way to um to point to what I want to do in the book, which is unpack some of these mistaken assumptions about Sino-Viet relations.
0: You do so um, in chapter one as well—a brief history on Anan. Uh, and in this chapter, you disentangle the writings of the 14th-century scholar Le Tak, who lived in exile in uh, today's Hubei province during the Mongol-ruled Yuan period or empire. Um, could you tell our listeners more about Le Tuck's extraordinary career and how he came to write a book about his native land from which he had been displaced?
1: Um, well, I found uh, Le Tuck's story so poignant and so moving that um, I was compelled to include it in the book um, and use his perspective to contextualize all of the earlier history of Sino Viet relations. And Latak wrote this wonderful book, and he doesn't write very much about himself, but the little bit that you do, you can see that he had such an extraordinary um, and really very sad life. Um, he was an outstanding student, and in the beginning of his life, he served for 10 years as an official in the court of the Vietnamese Dian dynasty. Uh, and then when the Mongols invaded, he ended up going with a whole parcel of people who surrendered um, to the Mongol troops and were, were brought north. Uh, his whole life, he wanted to go back, but he was never able to. So he had to live as an exile uh, and was someone who was basically cast as a traitor, Although it seems that he was really swept along with um, with the disruption of the time um, and ended up being displaced from his home and his family, and he wanted to to write a book about his um, homeland. And what I argue in the book is that he's really trying to write a place uh, for Vietnam into the the Northern Chronicles. Um, he's trying to. Um, enter it into the record and he mainly drew on Chinese sources and he was writing for a Chinese audience Um, but much of what he said came to influence the next several hundred years of of work and study on Vietnam within China and he also worked to soften some of the more negative uh, views that existed about Vietnam and China at that time. Great. I'm sure we'll come to
0: talk a bit more about these uh, views. Um, but in chapter two, we move on um, into the 15th century and learn about another Southern scholar um, who's in the North. Who. Uh, laments over his irrevocably changed homeland in, um, and this is the title, A Record of the Dreams of an Old Southerner. Indeed, the book was written at a time of fierce tension between diviet, as you call it, and Ming China, starting during the reign of the Yongle Emperor. And now I was wondering if you could tell our listeners a bit more about the Record of the Dreams of an Old Southerner and also how this compares to the previously discussed work by Leitak.
1: Sure. So the book was written by um, Ho jung who, again, was another figure like Leitak, who had such an interesting and, and very sad life history. Uh so he was a uh, prince of the Ho dynasty in Vietnam. Um so briefly when he was young his father was um the the ruler of the country. And then um the the Ho dynasty was deposed by the Ming and um he was brought as a captive to China where uh, he actually lived the rest of his life and worked as an official in the Ming government. So he's someone who went from being a, a Vietnamese prince uh, to seeing his father deposed and killed by the Ming and then becoming a Ming official himself. Um, so it's a really extraordinary story. And I use him as an example of uh, one person of the many who were affected by, by different policies held by the Ming towards Vietnam. So one of the goals of the book is to break up our monolithic view of China as always um, opportunistically invading Vietnam and showing that there's many examples of debate within China. So the debate mainly fell between, um, does Vietnam um, belong to um, a Chinese state? And here, let me pause and say, I know I'm using Vietnam and China very anachronistically, uh, but sometimes it's just necessary for clarity. So the debate was uh, about whether this area of the Red River Delta in northern Vietnam should rightfully belong to a Chinese state uh, or if it was rightfully a foreign country. And and so this whole prince was um, profoundly affected by these different policies um, through his own life as we see him... um, becoming a victim of the Ming invasion, and then also becoming an exile after the invasion ends, and he has no way to return home. Now in the third
0: chapter, you start out with a another r- really interesting episode. Um, during the reign of the Dajing Emperor, who in 1536 wished to send a cel- celebratory announcement of a newborn Ming prince to the tributary states such as Dai Viet. Um, but the situation was so complicated um, in Dai Viet w- that the Ming kind of uh, – Ming China was forced to investigate the political situation and um, try and understand who was actually sort of in charge, who they could send this announcement to. Um, and so I would like you to talk a bit more about um, how tiny Dai Viet, and you show this really nicely in this, in this chapter, as well as in many uh, of the others, posed a serious security threat to Ming China at that time. Um, and it did so in part by adopting or appropriating classical culture. Um, And so I was wondering if you could talk about this a bit more.
1: Sure. And I think I would clarify by saying, um, Dai Viet didn't pose so much of a security threat as more of an ideological threat. Uh, It didn't match Ming assumptions. Uh, Dai Viet, um, the way that it, Fashioned itself, it sort of posited itself as a center of classical culture and of political power that was outside of Ming control. So it was a state that used um, symbols of power like the mandate of heaven, for example, and the title emperor that Ming rulers thought uh, belonged to them alone. And that, I think, made Ming emperors um, and officials quite uncomfortable. And to way to, the way to deal with it was rhetorically. Uh, so this is the part of my research I found that I've gotten the most pushback against because it so defies um, what we expect about sino viet relations or about the power of Chinese states. But I think in some ways it's because the Chinese sources themselves speak so powerfully that they can silence some of the the voices in the margin. So what I want to do in this book and in this chapter is to take on the idea of a civilizing mission, or what's sometimes called a Confucian civilizing mission, uh, that sometimes crops up in secondary work about China. So I I think there's an assumption that people don't um, explore enough that Chinese states or that the Ming wanted to civilize its neighbors and turn them into... um, Um, good subjects of the the Chinese state. Um, But I found that in the case of Vietnam, that that's not true. That Vietnam, in a way, um, had all of these symbols of, of civilization that were uncomfortable for some Chinese viewers. And that the way that they could deal with this was through what I call a decivilizing mission where they uh, denigrate the Vietnamese, um, sort of insult their level of education and dismiss them as not being members of a larger um, community of learning. Um, so it's quite the opposite of, of what we're sometimes led to expect.
0: Great. And this is really refreshing, I dare say. Um, now, in part two, you put into question the common narrative of Ma Dengdung's surrender to the Ming dynasty in 1540 by highlighting the varying thoughts of Ming officials. It's revealing because there were indeed fierce debates within uh, Ming China and um, also voices challenging kind of Ming authority, uh, the Empress Authority. In, um one of them was Lin Xinyuan, who embodied the Yongle era approach of intervention we talked about um, just now previously. Um, so could you tell us a bit more about his view on Dai Viet and his relation to the Ming, and in turn, how his view uh, views were received by others as well?
1: Sure. Um, so there was quite a lot of um, rowdy debate within, um, the Ming about how to view Vietnam or how to view Dai Viet and what to do about it. Um, and the thing that's sort of fascinating about all these viewpoints is that they're all grounded in historical precedent. So, so whatever side of the debate one fell on, uh, you could pluck examples from the past to support your view. So I chose Lin Xuyen as, uh, one of the loudest examples of, um, those who were in favor of invading, um, Dai Viet and deposing the Mac dynasty. He was very opportunistic. Um, He was also very business minded. Um, He saw a lot of opportunity uh, in incorporating Dai Viet territory as part of the Ming empire. Uh, He thought it would be um, good for the state, good for the economy. Uh, And he wasn't shy about expressing his opinions very loudly again and again and writing again and again to the throne Uh, so in the end he was so obnoxious that um, he was treated as someone who was talking out of turn um, who needed to be neutralized and the interesting thing too is that within the system he had a way to kind of talk back and to express his views uh, but there are also ways to to silence him and marginalize him and he was Eventually fired and, and demoted, but some of his ideas did end up influencing policy. Great. Um,
0: th- now we get a different kind of perspective, and um, I, I mean, I cannot um, emphasize enough how how beautifully you kind of bring to life these uh, these um, primary sources. Uh, but in chapter five, you vividly describe how the surrender. Um, of Ma Dang Dung was perceived very differently yet again uh, by other witnesses. And um, um, you, you talk about both Chinese, uh, Chinese sources as well as Vietnamese ones. Um, and so I was wondering if you could uh, pick one of those that you kind of disentangle in this chapter and elaborate um, on um, the material um, and how this was used to kind of increase political power.
1: Sure, and I'll I'll sort of step away back from that question and, and answer very broadly first, uh, which is to say, I'll begin by saying that my my method is really bringing Chinese and Vietnamese sources in dialogue with one another and, and seeing what comes out, and something that's so interesting about the surrender of Mac Danzun in fifteen forty is that. At first glance, the Vietnamese and the Chinese sources are in total agreement. Uh, so this was something that I found really fascinating and baffling when I was first starting to look into this. Uh, so uh, official Vietnamese history written after the end of the Mao dynasty during the lay present this 1540 surrender as a surrender as something that was humiliating, as something that was shameful. Um, And Ming sources present it in a very similar way. And I thought that was quite odd, so I tried to understand it a bit better. And of course, from the perspective of the lay, it was important to um, write the Mac interregnum out of history so that they could um, sort of retroactively create an unbroken line of lay dynasty rule in in Vietnamese history. Um, So then I started looking for other kinds of sources that would show different perspectives. Um, And the perspectives that I find quite interesting are those of the Ming officials who were on the ground quite far away from the Ming court just trying their best to avert war um, and really using this, this quote-unquote surrender as a, a case of, of true diplomacy and negotiation where they were able to head off a war. And uh, for Mac Deng-Zung, who is the founder and the emperor of the Math dynasty, uh, who is presented as so humiliated, in fact, he's the only one who achieved his goal, which was to avoid... Um, going to war with the Ming and gaining the Ming as an ally. And in fact, this laid the groundwork for um, many, many decades of Ming and then later Qing support for the Maq even as they were um, defeated by the Lei and, and pushed out of what's now Hanoi and pushed into the border zone. They still retained the patronage of the Ming dynasty and later of the Qing. So it was really a very successful diplomatic move on his part.
0: We, we're moving on um, and into the third part of the book, uh, which is called The Return of the Lay Dynasty, and we're kind of in the second half of the 16th century, um, and in the sixth chapter you make known to us the, um, as you say, often overlooked decades of war during which the Southern lay regime fought for supremacy and dominance over all of uh, Dai Viet against the mak dynasty. I was wondering if you could talk uh, a bit more about this conflict or the, the, this, you know, different conflicts in Flora, which uh, defined the second half of the 16th century and how they make us understand the following decades of Sino-Viet relationships a bit better.
1: Sure. Well, one of the themes of the book is internal divisions both within China and in uh, Dai Viet. In the case of Dai Viet, the 16th century was extremely violent and disruptive. Uh, The the Ma continued to fight one another and within those respective uh, realms, they had succession disputes and power struggles. In brief overviews of Vietnamese history, this violent history is often left out. either because um, not much time uh, attention is paid to the 16th century, or in favor of telling a story of Vietnamese march to the south, or of Vietnamese unity. Um, But the 16th century shows symptoms of regional divisions that continued to play out in later years, and that were very important in in shaping the Vietnamese state. Um, It's also helpful to remember that for the Ming dynasty and the Qing dynasty, they were often dealing with more than one Vietnamese state, um, and this could cause confusion, uh, or they could sort of balance the um, demands of the two states uh, against one another. Uh, so it's much more complicated than simple state-to-state relations. Um and I, I think, in general, paying a bit more attention to this time period is, is helpful for breaking down the national narratives of history in both China and Vietnam uh, that are still so dominant today. Now, we're
0: moving into the... Uh, um Eighth chapter, which uh, you call quite beautifully The Sparrow and the Bamboo, and this is about the envoy to Beijing that you mentioned um, in the introduction just now as well. Um, And so I would like you to talk a bit more about this embassy to Beijing, the literati involved, and... Their, their kind of um, written texts about this and also what this tells us about the changing self-representation of Dai Viet. Sure. Um, so in
1: 1597, um, well after the Maq dynasty has been destroyed, the Lay dynasty sends uh, Fun Kaquan um this very well-educated and, and worldly man, um, to Beijing. On, as an envoy, and he has a very specific mission, which is to restore the name of, of country um, to Di Viet and the name of king to the, the ruler. It, he didn't succeed in doing this, but this was his main task. And what's so fascinating is that the tool he used for this was poetry. Uh, so to get the attention of the Wanli Emperor, he wrote a series of birthday poems that are just bristling with uh, references to the classics to show how um, well-read he was and well-educated. They're quite deferential, and they also affirm again and again the strong cultural connections between um, the Ming and Dai Viet. Um, And, of course, he also used poetry to communicate with other envoys, um, Korean envoys in the capital. What's really fascinating to me is the way that this story of Phung Kha quan uh, was transformed in later years in Vietnamese fiction in a really playful um, and fascinating way. So uh, Phung Kha quan instead of being this um, very stately Um, deferential elderly man who writes these um, remarkable poems, he becomes a sort of truth-teller who stands before the Wanli emperor and tells him off and demonstrates not that Dai Viet was equal to the Ming, but that it was better and that the the Ming had become um, degenerate and that Dai Viet was um, sort of bastion of of classical culture. Um, So I think The way the story gets playfully retold in Divya can tell us a lot about about um, self-fashioning and the formation of a national identity. And in the conclusion as well, you give a brief
0: outlook into the 17th century. Um, and so I would like you to talk a bit more about the relations between David and China between the Ming-Qing transition and how um, this transition affected the relations.
1: Well, the Ming-Qing transition turned sino relations on their head. Um, so, the Southern Ming, the Exile Ming became a supplicant, not just to the lay dynasty, but, but to the Mac. They needed their support. They needed their help. Um, so the rhetoric of their communications changed a lot. Um, but it's also this groundwork of, of many, many decades of uh, relations and diplomacy, um, comes to fruition where there really is, um, this need for mutual cooperation, um, And the Qing, too, when they came to power, they adopted a very generous tone uh, to the lay, a very conciliatory tone, really trying to reach out and um, form a close bond with them or close relations. And it it highlights something that we often forget, which is even though Dai Viet was quite small, it was important and it was um, uh, an important player um, for the Ming and Qing. And the thing that's quite interesting, too, is that it's finally um, the disruption of the rebellion of the three feudatories that normalize relations between, um, in this case, the Qing state and the Lei, uh, where we have one, what we tend to expect, which is one Chinese court and one Vietnamese court um, dealing with one another. Great, thank you so much. This was
0: uh, incredibly informative. I'd like to um, kind of uh, follow up uh, or ask a concluding question, uh, which is whether you're continuing to work on this. Maybe you know, maybe is. Your next book, a um, um, a book on the Sino-Viet relations during the following decades, or what is it that you're working on now?
1: Well, my book is sort of a, a follow-up, but it's not a chronological follow-up. Um, so, something I, I couldn't fail to notice when I was doing this research is that in both the Vietnamese and the Chinese sources, the word miasma came up constantly. So, miasma meaning this misty. Um, Damp climate of um, the borderlands area and some of the highland areas in both Vietnam and China, um, and my asthma also as an illness or um, a group of illnesses. This was a very big concern uh, for for Chinese troops. Um, so we found in in my sources, I find that uh, Chinese troops are constantly falling ill from miasma and um, generals are trying to find medicines or recruit local troops in order to avoid um, their troops falling ill. It affects the timings of campaigns, the lengths of of campaigns, how they recruit soldiers and I found that in Vietnamese sources the same thing is true uh, where as Vietnamese states expand into the highlands they also find that they're falling victim to miasmic diseases. I also found a lot of Um, exchange of medicines and medical knowledge between the two countries that have to do with cures for miasmic diseases um, as well as the perhaps more known um, literary tropes of the miasmic barbarian. So sort of back to my original interest in Um, depictions of Vietnam in in Chinese literature um, where Vietnamese or um, the so-called ethnic minorities of the Southwest are kind of associated with this climate and with these miasmic diseases. So my second book, will be about that, mainly because miasma is such it was so important to historical actors at the time, and it's a very good way to continue to work on uh, both China and Vietnam. That sounds
0: absolutely fascinating, and I'm looking forward to reading that book. For now, I thank you very much for taking the time to talk to me, and I encourage everyone uh, to read Kathleen Baldanza's latest book, Ming China and Vietnam, Negotiating Borders in Early Modern Asia.